Hello and welcome to Season 1 of Coloured Souls. My name is Jamie Gladstone and here we'll discuss current affairs in race policy, developments in education, African, Caribbean, South American history, post-colonial literature and decolonial thoughts. If you would like to join in the discussion, please email me at jamie at colouredsouls.co.uk or find me on Twitter under the name Coloured Souls UK. In March of 2020, Britain entered into the first lockdown of a few lockdowns. Um, whether or not they're successful is going to be a conversation for another place and another platform. Um, however, what we did notice was a gap come up between our classes and um, something which we've noticed over the course of many, many, many years. But I believe that this pandemic really shone a light on that gap. And so today we are going to talk about the privilege gap that has opened between our classes. So the pandemic has shone a light on a deeply divided workplace. The highly paid, salaried graduate and postgraduate elites on one side and the workers in dead-end jobs lacking basic rights or entitlements on the other. Those who are able to work from home, on average individuals with greater resources, were significantly less likely to be furloughed or to lose their jobs during the pandemic. Indeed, many middle-class salaried earners will have accumulated wealth via forced saving from not spending on things like expensive holidays, evenings out or eating in restaurants. And it's interesting to think that in the decades that have passed since the so-called Lancashire Mill Famine of the 1860s, that little has changed in order to protect the workers on the front line, so those responsible for maintaining a functioning society. Although their roles are amongst the most important for our economic health, their wages often keep them in poverty, a phrase we know as in-work poverty. Throughout the early days of the pandemic, we bore witness to this gap widening even further with the classification of key workers barely covering the members of society that required the most support. The huge shocks which have been paralysing the global economy have hit the lowest income and youngest earners the absolute hardest. Now, according to Adams Prassel in 2020, in excess of one million people applied for what is quite simply a controversial universal credit system, which is the basic benefit for working age people. Moreover, as with earlier recessions and experiences of unemployment, the COVID-19 induced downturn is likely to have long-term scarring effects, some of which we have already borne witness to, such as companies going out of business for good, employees facing permanent layoffs, and of course, the educational impact on the children that were unable to attend school during the various incantations of our lockdown. In truth, based on the research of Elliot Major and Machin in 2018, we were already heading towards a deep recession. Young people growing up today were facing declining absolute mobility, which means falling wages, fewer opportunities, and the growing spectre of downward social mobility. Whilst many clapped for carers and their priceless work battling to save lives, conspicuously missing from the public consciousness was the fact that for too long we have underpaid our key public sector workers such as teachers, nurses and carers of course, among many others. In fact the teachers, cleaners, supermarket workers, livery drivers and many other key workers were missing from this show of solidarity. And this pandemic has simply highlighted that Britain has barely moved forward from being a fragmented country defined by economic, geographic and political divides. 
Of course, people with higher paid corporate jobs have been more likely to find it easier to put distance between themselves and others. They can do their work from home, connect to colleagues and friends via Zoom, and hold online happy hours with their fellow quarantine colleagues. They may also be more likely to get food and supplies brought to their door, as well as stockpile some necessities. Now, it takes money to hoard. The Gall updater confirms that those with higher incomes were much more likely to say that they had stocked up on food, medical supplies, or cleaning supplies. This divide was evident as we saw supermarket shelves bare of the very basic foods which keep the poorest members of our society nourished. Even the supermarket own brand basics were snapped up by those with greater buying power, and the images of rotting fresh food in household bins told more of the story of the wealth gap in Britain than any statistical report ever could. Ultimately, working from home is a privilege. And research from inequality and the impact of the coronavirus shock, a new survey evidence for the UK by Adams, Prassel, Boniva, Golin and Raoul, use new UK survey data collected on the 25th of March in 2020. Now, Adams, Prassel et al. found that 57% of workers engaged in less paid work over that period than they usually did. 8% of workers in unemployment in February 2020 had already lost their jobs due to COVID-19. For those still in work, the expected probability of job loss within the next four months was 33%. On average, workers expected to earn 35% less between April and July compared to usual and expected there to be a 49% chance of them having problems paying their bills. These harsh impacts were not evenly distributed across the population. The young and low-income workers had, predictably, been hit the hardest. Workers without paid sick leave beyond the statutory minimum were more likely to go to work with a cold or a fever and also to work in close proximity with others. Simply put, workers on low incomes are less able to work from home, as are those in manual labour, as fewer of their usual tasks from their main job can be done from home. They're also more likely to have lost their job because of COVID-19 and can expect to lose a greater proportion of their usual earnings than those in higher paid jobs. Workers who earned less than £20,000 in 2019 can only do 30% of their tasks from their main job compared to 55% of those earning more than £40,000. Of those in employment, only 33% of workers earning less than £20,000 last year worked more from home at the height of the pandemic, compared to 72% of those earning more than £40,000. Again, workers on low incomes are more likely to have lost their job in March 2020 and attribute this to COVID-19. Of those in work in early March of 2020, 12% of workers earning less than £20,000 felt they would become unemployed either definitely or probably by the end of the month, compared to 5% of workers earning more than £40,000. So job security was much higher for those earning more money. Workers on low incomes expected to earn a smaller proportion of their usual income between March and August, and workers who earned less than £20,000 in 2019 expected just 58% of their usual income between March and August. Those earning more than £40,000 last year expected to make 69% of their usual average income. As for the self-employed, those not paid a salary and workers with variable hours at employers' discretion, for example, zero-hours contracts, they were more likely to have been negatively affected by the downturn and believed that they were more likely to face economic difficulties. Self-employed workers, those not paid a salary and those with variable hours, were more likely 
to work less and earn less. For example, 75% of the self-employed, 66% of temporary workers and 66% of workers with variable schedules set by their employer earned less in March 2020 compared to 26% of permanent salaried employees. This was argued in Parliament on countless occasions by Keir Starmer and other members of the Labour Party, but found no respite for the millions of self-employed traders. Workers employed on less secure work arrangements were more likely to have lost their jobs in the height and attribute this to COVID-19. Of those in work, 28% of temporary workers and 15% of those with variable hours set by their employer felt they would become unemployed either definitely or permanently, compared to 4% of permanent salaried employees. Workers on less secure work arrangements expected to earn a smaller proportion of their usual income. For example, self-employed workers, temporary workers, and those with variable hours, as we've mentioned, set by their employer, expected to earn only 49%, 51%, and 59% respectively of their usual income, compared to 77% of permanent salaried employees. Now, it can often be quite deceiving to just look at cold statistics because those numbers could mean pretty much anything and they're often up for debate. So let's take a quick dive into the Ethnicity Facts government website. So in the year ending March 2019, the average or median annual household income in each quintile before housing costs were paid were as follows. In the top quintile, £54,000. In the second highest quintile, £35,700. £26,800 in the middle quintile, £20,500 in the second lowest quintile, and £13,300 in the bottom quintile. This data shows that, for housing costs were paid, 47% of households from Pakistani ethnic group were in the lowest income quintile. This was the highest percentage out of all the ethnic groups. The Pakistani ethnic group was also the highest percentage of households in the lowest two income quintiles at 73% in total. The white other at 36%, white British at 38%, and Indian also at 38% ethnic groups had the lowest percentage of households in the lowest two income quintiles. The Bangladeshi ethnic group had the lowest percentage of households in the highest income quintile at 3%, whilst the Chinese group had the highest percentage at 27%. There were three times as many black households in the lowest income quintile at 31% as in the highest income quintile at 10%. In the three years to March 2019, an average of 28% of households in the UK had a weekly income of below £400 before tax. 28% of households had a weekly income of £1,000 or more. Black households were most likely out of all of the ethnic groups to have a weekly income of less than £400, which was 15%. Households in the Indian ethnic group were most likely to have a weekly income of £1,000 or more. White British at 28%, white other at 34%, and black at 20%. Okay, so I've just thrown a whole load of numbers at you there. So how do these figures transpose into the real world that our brothers, sisters, parents, children, and other loved ones are living in? Well, basically, in-work poverty has been a significant issue in Britain for many, many years, and the pandemic simply highlighted the poverty that's been forgotten by many in much the same way as Hurricane Katrina brought the poverty of New Orleans to the world's attention in 2005. 
This is not a problem exclusively to the black population, but the figures from the government's study, which shows that black households were most likely to have a weekly income of less than £400, indicates that in-work poverty in the black community is still as endemic as ever, with many low-paid workers unable to work from home or to be granted the moniker of key worker, they were left with a childcare conundrum in which work or childcare became the choice. The financial impact of either choice gave rise to many people not seeking treatment for symptoms or hiding them in order to not miss work. Whilst many MPs argued that the high rate of infections among the black community was an issue of race, the story runs far deeper than skin color. Looking at some of the hotspots of infection, the infrastructure just wasn't there. Statutory sick pay just plain isn't sufficient for a family when the main income earner requires a minimum of two weeks off work in order to self-isolate. The access to medical care is more difficult as surgeries close and the criteria for free prescriptions makes it tougher for some low-income households to receive the help they so desperately need. And then there are of course the conditions in which some people are forced to live. Very close quarters and reliance on neighbours to care for children whilst the main income earner goes out to work created an ideal breeding ground for a virus that just loves human contact. Now it's very important to say that not all of the black communities live in such conditions as there are many, many people living in detached houses and affluent areas. This is why we must look beyond simple skin colour when attempting to understand why the numbers of infections were so high in the black communities. Richard Reeves and Jonathan Rothwell conducted a study in the US and they titled it In Class and COVID, How the Less Affluent Face Double Risks. And one thing they highlighted were what they called the education shocks. So people living payday to payday and service sector jobs are in a very different position to those working in salary jobs that they can do from home. So many people that work in restaurants as chefs, waiters or cleaners were stranded at home, some with full, others with partial or virtually no pay. Stark gaps in wealth, health and work have gone from being chronic problems to acute ones. Other inequalities have become even more consequential in a time of social distancing, such as access to a fast internet connection. Now this was something which I brought up in a class of trainee teachers during the second lockdown, which proved to be an interesting discussion and a subject which, moving forward, we need to look closely at, as this was a valid reason why many of our children were unable to access the online tasks that were being set. Now the school I was working in had such high levels of poverty that the choice between food and the internet was one in which basic survival needs won every single month. And one of the most comprehensive studies into fairness in the UK shows how class, race and gender remain crucial factors in determining how British pupils succeed at school and beyond. So the upheaval in education, meanwhile, has been equally seismic. Online tutoring has flourished due to mass home learning. Tutoring firms have reported a surge in business fueled mainly by parents with the money to afford tutoring for their children. Children from better off households are more than twice as likely to have had more than £100 spent on their education since lockdown, as according to the Sutton Trust. A home learning divide was of course inevitable, as not all children benefit from the study space, computers, internet and general educational support available in many middle class homes. Whilst for some children, a separate bedroom of fibre broadband and personal device are just the norm, there are many millions of children living in shared bedrooms and many with no internet connection in their homes at all. 
The government's drive to get laptops out to children, whilst noble and on paper looked amazing, was a disaster from the outset, with many children receiving absolutely nothing and others taking delivery after the classroom doors had reopened. As for some, they received laptops, but they could not connect to their school's online portals due to a lack of internet connectivity. It's incredible to think that something which is so normalized for so many of us is still a luxury for others. This was something which I saw firsthand again in the school that I was working, which was located in the northeast of England. The school itself was oversubscribed with 33% of pupils in receipt of free school meals, and the pecuniary difficulties of the pupils echoed the economic environment across many towns and villages of the region. We had many students of families on low incomes, which came to the school simply because they could not access the internet. So although they were not the children of key workers, they were vulnerable, and so we had them in. We lent iPads to pupils and funded dongles and sims to ensure that they could access the work that was still being planned and assessed under difficult conditions. This was something that was funded by the school, not by the government. This economic disparity was something clearly overlooked by the government during the pandemic and something which, as a country, we must learn from. Now, we all know that the best place for children to have been during this was in the classroom. But for those that couldn't be, a stable internet connection and solid support from home would have lessened the potential impact of the closure of schools. In truth, efforts to close the achievement gap between poorer pupils and their more privileged peers were already stalling before the pandemic. Now, this is according to the Department of Education in 2019. In February of 2020, the Department for Education reported a slight increase in the pupil attainment gap index for a second year. The fear now is that the gap will become much wider, reversing the incremental gains made over the last decade. It's important to note that the improvements have been incremental and that this is a group effort, yet these gains are not solid and therefore events such as the closure of schools may have had a hugely detrimental effect on the long-term abilities of some of our pupils. Now this was something that again I witnessed in a local nursery in which some pupils or some children that came in unable to recognize their own names due to a lack of interaction with their parents. Now I hasten to add that that's not to say that all parents on low income are likely to neglect the basic development of their children as there are plenty of affluent parents with similar attitudes and many parents on low incomes that are extremely extremely supportive of their children and their educational needs simply an observation of what i witnessed now it will be interesting therefore to see what the future brings for what the press have dubbed the covid generation now of course it's hard to calculate how much education gaps will grow but we can give just very broad estimates. And given the unprecedented circumstances, disadvantaged pupils could experience learning losses of perhaps four and six months if disrupted by school closures for several months or these rolling fire break lockdowns or children having to self-isolate and bubbles closing and, and all sorts of other factors. Now we should be carefully looking at this impact as it's all relative and the learning styles of some children support offered by their adults at home varies wildly. A huge caveat is that we should take these month estimates with a pinch of salt, as the abilities of many of these children in an educational sense may be fairly high. There were children in one of my schools that came from the most disadvantaged households, yet the support offered to them was amazing, and the children flourished due to the extra support. What we do know is that some of the knowledge that many children would have gained was not taught to them as they struggled to access the material. 
Summer learning loss is something that's been documented across the world, with poorer children lagging further behind when they return to school. That was according to Cooper et al. in 1996. Low-income pupils were found to be as much as three months behind their better-off peers in reading achievement after long summer vacation in the United States. Learning slides were also observed for maths. Other studies using different methodologies reached comparable estimates of total learning loss. That was according to Burgess and Sievertson in 2020. And this is something that teachers prepare for at the start of term. And it's why recapping over the first few weeks is a powerful tool to drive the children forward in that first term. However, these are unprecedented times, so we do not precisely know how much middle-class pupils will pull further away through tutoring and superior study conditions over an extended period of many, many months. There are also concerns that poorer students may suffer from being underpredicted in their A-levels by teachers missing out on highly selective universities, according to Murphy and Wyness in 2020. The same could be true for GCSEs, often critical to securing a sixth form place. Even more worrying is the very real possibility of black pupils being undergraded. Now we've already seen over the decades that children from Caribbean heritage are less likely to leave school with a grade C or above, with 26.9% achieving A star to C grades in English and maths, or nine to five in the new grading system. Thinking back to a podcast which was put out by Leeds Beckett University featuring David Gilborn, he mapped out the paths of many black and Caribbean children through education. He spoke about these children being more likely to receive exclusions, twice as likely for temporary and three times as likely for permanent, less likely to get entered for the highest papers which offer the grades essential for getting into A-levels, those at A-level being offered lower-ranked vocational courses, only 3.5% achieve a grade A or above in three subjects compared to 10.9% of white students. They're less likely to be accepted into elite universities with the same qualifications as white applicants, and if they do make it to university and into any of those elite universities, they're less likely to leave with a top-ranked top degree. He states that this begins during their primary education and that systematically their chances are stunted as they traverse the educational system. Furthermore, black Caribbean people are almost 10 times more likely to be stopped and searched, four times more likely to be arrested, and interestingly, 28% of black Caribbean people said that they thought they were likely to be victims of crime, compared to 18% of white British people. Now that may seem like a slight digression from the world of education, but you also have to remember that the impacts of a child's family life will impact on their educational life and how they perform at school. So if there's this uncertainty at home of a parent being um, arrested or being stopped and searched and, and the emotional impact that that will come with for the parents will obviously filter down to the children. Now as for the privilege gap, the housing stats may shed some light with the following comparisons. So 37% of black Caribbean people within our country are homeowners, compared to 68% of the white British. 18% of Caribbeans are private renters, compared to 16% of white British. And a staggering 45% of Caribbean people are renting from social housing, with only 16% of white British. Now, traditionally here in the UK, I'm not saying it's everybody, of course, that would be a rash generalization. It's not the kind of thing that I would do. 
However, we have found that a lot of people that live in social housing usually tend to be in the poorer spectrum of our society. Therefore, that's going to have a greater impact on the education of our children. Now, the figures to back all of this up can again be found on the Ethnicity Facts government website. Now, this is something that has not only been documented over the years, but lived by countless Caribbean children, myself included. Growing up black in Britain has traditionally come with challenges of subtle social subtle social segregation and the education system has not been spared from these horrors. Add into this the crippling poverty that plagues many black communities and we may see these gaps in attainment widening even further than before. As a nation, where does this leave us? Well, in pretty much the same place as we began. The class divide has been well established for centuries and, traditionally, it has been the working class that has found themselves punished in situations like these. Look at historical famines across the British Empire. On our shores, the North suffered during the American Civil War years as they battled their own grisly relationship with slavery and the supply of American cotton dried up. The millions of Bengalis that perished during the Second World War and, of course, the very well documented Irish potato famine. During these horrific moments in histories, the so-called upper classes didn't want for the necessities, nor the luxury. Therefore, if we are looking pragmatically at the events of the pandemic, it is clear that any economic impact was always, always going to hit our poorest communities the hardest. Whilst the furlough scheme and the universal credits uplift helped, they are not designed to be permanent systems to help the most financially vulnerable members of our society. Now, my specialism is looking into how political race discrepancies are affecting the progress of black communities here and in other countries, as well as how Africans and those of us in the wider diaspora are affected in our daily lives by the policies and fragilities of living in Western nations such as Britain and the US. But this pandemic has been something which has impacted every family without access to the internet. So it's been completely non-discriminatory. An opportunity to work from home, those not classed as key workers, thus their children have lost valuable contact time with their educators. Now, whilst I am and will always remain a fervent advocate for the progress of black communities, this has been a humanitarian issue and all communities have been impacted by this pandemic. And you can think of the pandemic what you will, and that's a subject for a different platform, but these communities should be given the opportunity to improve their condition. So what would that take? Well, where do we start? Pandemics are not something that many governments are fully prepared for. And despite the planning, things can and do change quickly and so can be unpredictable. Essentially in the 21st century, things like internet connection shouldn't really be a luxury. Especially as many universities offer online courses and without this platform, millions of Britons, myself included, would not have degrees. And supplying a government subsidised programme of internet connectivity would go a long way towards evening the playing field. And let's just hope, let's just hope that it doesn't take a professional footballer or another public figure to force the government to do something to help the country's neediest, like it did for many of our poorest families, to be able to even feed their children during the lockdown. But if that's what it does take, it may go a long way to highlighting who really cares about our poorest families here in Britain. Thank you for listening to today's show. And if you'd like to join in the discussion, please email me, jamie at colouredsouls.co.uk or find me on Twitter as Colored Souls UK.
To be notified of every time a new episode goes live, please hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app or visit coloredsouls.co.uk forward slash podcast. If you'd like to contribute to the ongoing production of this show, then please buy me a book. Uh, visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash colored souls. Thank you again for listening and I'll speak with you soon.